So Pastor Benji was gracious to let me preach today, so I repaid him by giving him two book-length passages to read up here on this pulpit. Let's pray one more time and get started. Lord Almighty, thank you for bringing us here, and we pray that you would be here and open your word to us so that we would be more and more the men and women of God you have created us to be. Bless us, Jesus, so that we will be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. The closest synonym to worship is sacrifice. To worship something is to express your value of your God. To worship something is to make a special effort to acknowledge the debt owed or to express a desire to your God. To worship is to sacrifice something of value so as to benefit from the person or the thing that you worship. It's pretty simple. The job description of a God is to provide, protect, and provide purpose to its subject. If that's true, then the job description of the worshiper is to depend upon that God to provide, protect, and to give purpose to him or her. Now, an idol, then, is a representation. It is a substitute for this God that is worshipped so that it will provide, protect, or give purpose to its subject. You see, idolatry is always utilitarian. Idolatry is always something that you do so you can get something in return. And the idolater worships because he or she expects something good. In other words, he or she sacrifices their time, their talent, or their treasures, or their family, whatever else it is otherwise that is, av- that is valuable to them, so that they can have whatever it is they happen to be desiring from this God. Let's look at the most commonly worshipped idol in our culture. The quote-unquote almighty dollar. In our culture, of the three ubiquitous temptations, money, pleasure, and power, cash, money, is the universal currency for that temptation. Money is everywhere. Money can buy anything. In fact, money is probably almighty. So says the voices of the culture you live in. And it's easy here to depend upon cash to provide what we want or need, to protect us when things fail, and even to give purpose to our work and even our very lives. So the question is, how do we worship money? How is it that Christians and non-Christians bow the knee, so to speak, to this quote-unquote almighty dollar? Well, we do it when we are willing to sacrifice things that are of real value beyond what is reasonable in order to gain money because we're depending on it to provide for us, to protect us, and to give us purpose. 
So you know that you're doing this when you are continually thinking about how you can get more money, even at the expense of family and friends. You know that you're worshiping money when you're obsessing with how you would spend that money if only you could get some more. You know that you're worshiping money when you are unwilling to use or invest money for the benefit of those who are near you. No, let's be real. Because on the other hand, worshiping Jesus, worshiping the true God, oftentimes begins very utilitarian, just like idolatry. I just want some fire insurance. Thank you very much. But true worship of Jesus, even the kernel of it, that is where we all begin will grow in intimacy. Why is this true? It is because Jesus keeps His promise where cash cannot. Jesus will keep His promises and He will give you assurance if you are listening. Jesus assures you when you sacrifice your pride, your power, and your patience. In other words... Jesus will give you assurance when you worship. And this is why, one of the many reasons why God continually commands, exhorts, and equips us to worship Him. The author of Hebrews tells us, Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. You will praise whatever it is you worship. Some baseball player, some movie actress, the almighty dollar. You have to praise because it's just a part of who we are, whatever it is you worship. And we find that the most common command in Scripture, the most commonly commanded command in Scripture is Y'all praise Yahweh. Now in your Bible, it's usually worded hallelujah. But hallelujah is a command. It is a command. All y'all praise the Lord. That is what you must do. And the reason God says this over and over and over again is because He knows that when you are praising Him, you are not praising whatever idols it is that's putting harm to your soul. Now, fortunately for us, God gives us other and even more specific commands relating to worshiping Him. He gives us reminders so that you and I are equipped against the temptations to worship things like money, pleasure, and power. He gives us commands like worship together. He gives us commands like pray continually, baptize each other, celebrate Communion. Now, as most of you know here, since 2003, every year on one side of Thanksgiving or another, I preach a sermon on communion. Man, you know, it just seems to me we, we get to preach for about five minutes after our sermon about communion each month. We need more than that. Amen? Amen. This table is one of the most powerful and important 
services of worship that we do in our lives. This year, instead of preaching a passage like I normally do and then speaking about how communion is an application of that passage, I want to take a more topical bent and I want to allow us to ask and answer some FAQs, some frequently asked questions about the Lord's Supper. We're going to spend some time answering these questions that hopefully have occurred to you. And while we are doing it, we will learn to worship intimately, just a little bit better. And we will see that the closest synonym to worship is sacrifice. So, It is because we miss the point of communion if we fail to see that it is first and foremost worship. And as worship, the first thing that we sacrifice are our taste buds when we eat this bread. (laughs) But what is it that we really sacrifice when we come to this table? We will find that it is our pride, our power, and our patience. I'll explain as we go along. But let's start at the beginning where Jesus instituted the meal that we call communion. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 26, 26 to 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. And He took the cup and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, Drink of it, All of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus gave us the celebration the night before He gave His Father His life for your sins and mine. But a fundamental question is, what do we call it? What do we call this meal that we celebrate? Now, simply put, in broad strokes, you have the kind of high church group of people that includes Catholics and most Episcopalians, and they call it Eucharist. And Eucharist is a great term because it refers to the thankfulness that we need to give to our Lord for shedding His blood on the cross for my sins. And then if you take a more Protestant Presbyterian bent to this meal, you're going to call it the Lord's Supper. And this is a fantastic term to use because it refers to the fact that Jesus gave us this meal at his last supper, the the final Passover meal in his earthly life. If you take a more low church or Baptistic bent towards things, you're going to call it communion because communion reminds us that when we do it, we are sitting at table with all the believers of all time in the church universal, including Jesus himself, celebrating this very important meal. And we recognize that this is a celebration and it is a worship service with each other. And the closest synonym of worship is sacrifice. And so my first so what, my first application is almost too weak to say, but we, ba- we are Baptists after all and we have a stubborn prideful streak in us. Does anybody want to admit that? 
Anybody raise hands? Yeah, okay, good. The rest of you all are liars, and we'll talk about that later. But we stubborn Baptists need to sacrifice our pride and be willing to use the other guy's word when we're talking about the Eucharist. When we're talking about what the Lord has done and the fact that we need to respond in thankfulness. Now, one more note. Here at Grace, we intentionally don't put down other Christian traditions. And we do that on purpose because we know that we don't have all of the answers. But today, as I am looking at this very most important of meals, there are three broad strokes that I've already mentioned that we need to look at. And I did my best to, in the very short amount of time I have, to give an accurate understanding of what each of these broad traditions uh, mean. So please don't take offense at anything that I say with regards to that. But what the, the next question is, what is this? What is it that we do here? And there's two common answers that have gone throughout the church history. And the first is the idea of a sacrament. And the Catholics, when they look at sacraments, it is important to note that the sacraments actually have the power to convey the blessings that they signify. And in this case, Jesus signifies through these his body and blood, which is spilt for the forgiveness of sins. And this can be understood how Catholics use the phrase means of grace. For them, there is salvific grace that is communicated to the worshiper. Now, this is more complicated than I have time to, to explain, but they believe, traditional Catholics believe, that the proper use of these sacraments are necessary for salvation. And being mildly oversimplistic, you must take Eucharist in order to be saved. Now, Presbyterians, or as we uh, usually call ourselves here, Reformed at Grace, they take a different, a slightly more nuanced view. Sacraments to Presbyterian Christians are signs of the real presence and power of Christ in the church. They are symbols of God's ac action. And through the sacraments, God seals believers in redemption, renews our identity as the people of God, and marks us for service. Now, Presbyterians continue to use the word sacrament, but it is more nuanced. Again, it goes back to the phrase, means of grace. Tim Challies says this. He says, so when a sacrament is properly administered, there is real and effectual promise attached to it. The effect that will be derived from the act, from taking communion, will be from God alone. Key difference. The effect, what is that we are going to get out of taking the Lord's Supper, is an from this act is from God alone. Chalice continues. He says, This is not to say that the Lord's Supper removes sins or conveys salvation. There's the difference between Presbyterians and Catholics. 
but it is to say that there is some spiritual advantage to being baptized. Similarly, there is spiritual advantage to participating in the Lord's Supper. More than merely signifying something, the Lord's Supper actually conveys something. Now, I think that is an eminently good statement of what is going on when we take the Lord's Supper. But as most of you here know, Baptists use the term ordinance to refer to communion. And the idea behind ordinance is that the taking of the bread and the cup is an object lesson. It is symbolic. It is a representation of the reality that is spiritual. And the key distinction between Baptistic believers and more Presbyterian believers, the key thing that Baptists are trying to communicate over against the use of the term sacrament is to tell very clearly that the celebration of communion does nothing to save the individual. The bread and the cup are a means to obey Christ's command to recognize those who are near them theologically and express their unity with the body of Christ. And Baptists in general don't like to use the phrase means means of grace because it smacks of works righteousness. Now, personally, I continue to use the term ordinance because I don't want to offend my Baptist brothers and fathers. And it is probably more utilitarian than I want to admit. Um... uh, Yes. However, I like using the phrase means of grace in a more Presbyterian or a more Reformed manner. Let me explain. You and I are at a foundational, fundamental level supernaturalists. We believe that God is at work right now in us, through us, and around us in the world in which we live. We are supernaturalists. Things cannot, they must not be reduced to a merely naturalistic understanding of what human beings can do. So, when we obey Christ's commands, just like the Israelites marching around Jericho, God moves. And guess what? God still tears down walls. And He still tears down walls in our hearts. Again, Chalice indicates what he sees as the biggest difference between the sacraments and the ordinances from a Protestant, not a Catholic view. He says, where sacraments revolve around what God does, ordinances revolve around what man does and what God did. Now, if you like your word, ordinances, you can keep your word. But when you begin to view the Lord's Supper as something that God is doing in you, and you remember that what you are doing communicates a spiritual reality among your brothers and sisters all the way back from the, to the beginning of the church, I think two things will happen. You will be 
you will have a much more accurate view of what you do when you're celebrating communion and you will take it much more humbly. And both of those are a good thing. Because let me ask you, do you believe that if you obey God's commands to celebrate communion, do you believe that He will literally bless you? Or do you believe that what is going on here once a month is just something that's a kind of a nice add-on if your family doesn't have a soccer game that weekend? Choose to believe that God is at work in you when you eat the bread and when you drink the cup. Because the closest synonym to worship is sacrifice. My friends, when you celebrate communion, you must sacrifice your belief in your own power. You must recognize that what is most important right here, right now, on November 19th, 2017, is what God is doing in you and through you when you take this cup and this bread. You will, sacri- you will gladly then sacrifice your quote-unquote power because you will recognize when I am weak, then I am strong. But now we must get to another level of sacrifice. What is it that we take? I'm going to make this one short. When Jesus celebrated his last Passover, the last supper, there were five glasses of wine on the table for everybody around. Furthermore, we find in John chapter 4, when Jesus turns the water into wine, we see a really kind of strange idea. When Baptists are writing the commentary on John, they fall all over themselves explaining, well, it's not real wine. It's only got limited alcohol and it's, it's taken for all these purposes. And they spend pages and pages and pages talking about this. When, on the other hand, you go to a Catholic or a Presbyterian commentary on John chapter 4, they always end their commentary by saying, man, it was good wine. Now, fortunately for us Baptists here, and I still consider myself a Baptist, even if I lose my Baptist card from someone in here, the text in Matthew simply says, cup. So we can fill it with the fruit of the vine, any fruit of the vine we wish, namely the Kirkland brand we get at Costco because it's the cheapest. (laughs) And since I personally really don't like the taste of wine, I'm content. But there is a much more fundamental, much more important question to ask than what it is you drink on any given Sunday. And that is... Questions and answers that will come from rightly understanding the other important witness to the original Lord's Supper. And we get it from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 29. Paul writes this, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This passage is one that we must all deal with humbly. Do you get nervous when you come before the Lord's table? Do you take seriously the cautions that Paul gives us here? You should. Because he's giving these cautions to Christians. Now, I think there's at least three things that we need to take from this passage among the others. And that is, number one, you and I need to keep short accounts with God. When I was working with Campus Crusade all the time, one of the frequent mantras that went through everybody's lips is keep short accounts, keep short accounts, keep short accounts with God. In other words, as soon as you know that you're sinning, repent, ask forgiveness, and move forward. And very often, is this not true? We are reminded that we are sinning right when that cookie is still in our hands. But there's another important thing that we need to get, and that is you and I need to make war on our sin. How many here are sinless? How many here have no struggle with any sin? Of course not. And so if you took that standard as something you need to meet in order to take communion, you would never take communion. But instead, the Bible is clear. What is being asked of us is that we fight sin. If you are in the fight, if you are doing battle with your sin, if you are making sure that you are steering clear of the temptations that are so frequently attacking you, if you are making it clear that you are changing your minds and you are redirecting your thoughts away from those sins, that you will sometimes fail, then you are in a position to take communion. In fact, not only that, but you must take communion because one of the big aspects of taking communion is that it strengthens us spiritually so that when we are doing battle with our sins, we will have the strength, we will have grace to fight those sins. But then number three, we need to make peace with those who are near us. And God's word is very clear on this one. I'm only going to read two passages of the many that we could. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Listen. I have often wondered, 
Why is it that we don't see right after the sermon and before the elements are distributed that someone just stands up and they walk around to somebody else and say, hey, can we, can we go outside and talk about something? And repent. Offer your forgiveness and receive their forgiveness. Jesus is blood earnest when he gives us this command in Matthew 5. And I tell you what, if you do that, and it takes you longer to do that than it takes for us to distribute the elements, you come and talk to Pastor Benji or I. We'll take you back here and we'll serve you communion on your own. It's that important. But there's another passage, Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Before you take communion, you should make absolutely sure, so far as it depends on you, that you are at peace with everyone. Now, this is a double-edged sword. Because number one, you need to be willing to forgive your brother or sister when they have sinned against you. So far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. But the other side of the sword is just as important. You need to be willing to receive that forgiveness. But how often are we unwilling and we make no effort. We don't even begin to pretend to make the effort. Instead, if you want to take communion in such a way that you know that you know that you know you're not drinking and eating judgment on yourself, make sure. Make sure that you consider if this is true for you. Because the closest synonym of worship is sacrifice. Receiving the Lord's Supper will cost you your pride because you must forgive and be willing to forgive. Celebrating Eucharist will cost you trusting in your own power because you recognize you can't solve every interpersonal problem without the power of the Holy Spirit. And so celebrating at the Lord's table, you are receiving grace. You are receiving power to accomplish kingdom purposes right here. Because the closest synonym to worship is sacrifice. But then the next question is, who should take it? Who should celebrate or participate at the Lord's table? Well, simply put, believers... God's people. Listen, if you are not a believer, if you have not trusted the promises of God for you in Christ, please don't take the Lord's Supper. Deal with God about that first. And then, like I said, come up and see me. We'll take you back here. We'll give you communion after everybody leaves. Matthew 26, 26, Jesus says, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples. Now, we are careful here at Grace because we're good old American Baptists that each time we take communion that anybody who wishes to identify with this church is welcome to take communion with us. You don't have to be a member. You don't have to attend a special class. 
And we allow individuals to make their own decision as to whether or not they are worthy. Like I said, after all, we're good old-fashioned American, independent, yeah, Baptists. But the next question gets to the heart of a lot of issues. What about my kids? Should I allow my children to take communion? Now, this is my opinion. I'm I'm telling you this is what I think, but I'm also saying this because there's a lot of history coming up, even though there isn't a specific Bible verse that says this. I would not allow my boys to take communion until after they were baptized. Now, once they were both baptized, I want them to take communion. I also made it very intentional that the first time they took communion, I was the one who served it to them. I believe that as communion is an expression of union with the body of Christ, our children should have already identified with the body through baptism. Now, okay, there's all kinds of other things. Does that mean if someone's an adult and they become a Christian that they can't get communion until after they've been baptized? Okay, well, you need to understand that there's all kinds of little exceptions, but to answer the question about our children, I think, is fundamental. And consult God's Word for yourself. Talk to mature believers and then make up your mind as your conscience leads you. Because the closest synonym of worship is sacrifice. And sometimes receiving communion will cost you your patience and your pride. You must be patient when you're participating at the Lord's table because you must wait till your children are ready and not just hand them judgment. You must be patient while celebrating communion yourself because you must wait till you are ready. And that can be embarrassing. Going up and to someone saying, hey, are we okay? Waiting for us is not a strong point in our culture. But more importantly, however, celebrating communion is all about patience in one more area. And that is asking the question, why should we receive communion? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11.26, he says, For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. There's a worship pastor in Illinois. His name is Ryan Shelton. And he put the three most commonly given reasons for celebrating communion in a particularly good way that I really like how he did it. So I'm going to paraphrase what he says. He says, communion is a living parable of dependence. And this is where celebrating communion will cost you your pride. You will have to stop depending on your good looks, your fabulous mind, and your stunningly handsome lack of hair to get you into heaven. Instead, you're going to have to rely on the body and the blood of Jesus. And our pride doesn't always like that. Communion is a living parable of intimacy. And this is where where celebrating communion will cost you your power. You 
can truly do nothing on your own. Part of the point of John 15. Therefore, when you worship the Lord at His table, you are taking a means of grace to give you the power you need to accomplish kingdom purposes. You are spiritually feeding yourself so that you will have the spiritual, mental, emotional, and physical strength to do crazy things like going to the Central Coast Rescue Mission and feeding the people. Doing crazy, weird stuff like coming afterwards and decorating the church for Christmas. Yes, that's a little selfish because I don't want to be the only one here carrying that stuff. I used to have more brawn than brains. Now I don't have either. So please come. Participating at the Lord's table will give you the grace, the power to accomplish kingdom purposes that you need to be patient with your child when they're bugging you again and again and again and again. But communion is also a living parable of anticipation. This is where communion will cost you your patience. You don't know when Christ will return. And in the meantime, we have a child in our church who is suffering cancer for the third time. In the meantime, we are suffering with just the damage to our bodies that continually get weaker and weaker. In the meantime, we're suffering with people who just don't understand. Namely, us. We suffer. And we need patience to suffer. Because as I was talking to someone this morning, one day, these are not the last eyes we are going to get. But in the meantime, we have to play trombone as we're reading. So be patient. Because your risen Savior is also your soon coming King. Communion is about obeying Christ's command. Communion is about joining with your brothers and sisters and celebrating what God has done among us. Communion is first and foremost a worship service, trusting the God who gave it to us that He is nourishing us and giving us what we need until He comes. Now, most of you know I love fishing. I wish I were good also at catching. But one thing I know is that when you're fishing, you can't jerk your pole around like you have a fish on it or you won't catch fish. You must be patient. You have a job to do. Keep your bait fresh. Keep your bait in the right place so that you can catch fish. Likewise, you and I need to be patient while we are awaiting Christ's return. You have a job to do. Fortunately, it's a little simpler than fishing, but it is also all-encompassing. It is worship. And the closest synonym to worship is sacrifice. 
Lord, as we prepare right now to worship you by participating at your table, I pray that you would prepare us. I pray that you would give us grace. You would give us strength and power to accomplish your purposes in our lives right now. Bless us, Lord Jesus, so that we will be a blessing.